welcome to Lake Point Church. Um, if this is your first time here, I am not Frank Bennett. Obviously, you just saw him. Um, he is the lead pastor, but he gives me the opportunity every once in a while to get up here and just kind of share some thoughts. Um, so I'm really excited about starting uh, the third sort of installment, I guess, if you will, of David. And I was actually really nervous to start or just kind of take take it from here where Pastor Frank left off last week because, you know, he was talking about how David is his favorite character and everything like that. And I was like, man, I don't want to get up here and like ruin it, right? Um, It's a lot of pressure. So I'm really excited to be here though. I think that what God has given me and what Pastor Frank and I talked about and what to discuss, I think it's going to be awesome. I think you guys will really get a lot from it. I know I've learned a lot from the first two weeks. So hopefully I can keep that flow going and hopefully we can, uh, we can all learn something together about the life of David, which I'm really excited about. However, before we do that and before I jump right in to David, there's a little matter of a, um, there's a little matter of debate that I would like to settle. Now, before we settle this debate and before you get all mad and upset, you know, don't throw things up here at the stage at me. Don't come, you know, find me in the parking lot and decide to beat me up after. Um, don't, do, don't do that because I won't fight back, I promise. I'll just let you do it. So please don't embarrass me like that in front of everybody, especially in front of my wife. Just if you're going to do it, just let her leave first. Um, but before we do that, we need to settle a debate here. And that is who is the greatest rapper of all time? All right, we're going to settle that debate real quick. And it sounds like that's not relevant, but I promise you it will be. Because there's a lot of debate recently, especially about who is really the greatest rapper of all time. You know, do you count the people, you know, from like, like the early, like the early, like the early hip hop when it first started or like today's hip hop, if that's even considered hip hop anymore, or are they even rapping anymore at this point? Like, what is it? Right? So we need to settle that debate. And I think I can do it. And I think I'm going to do it because obviously I look like I am just the poster child for being able to settle a rap debate, right? Going to Adairsville High School, the epicenter of rap, in case you were confused. Um, However... I'm here to tell you today that the greatest rapper of all time is not Biggie. I'm sorry for those of you who think he is. He is not. It is not Tupac. Sorry, Pac, if you're watching in Cuba somewhere. Um, Just facts. Just saying facts, by the way. Um, It is not Eminem, contrary to popular belief, even though, you know, he would tell you himself that he is. Um, It is also not Kendrick. It's not Kendrick Lamar. Although I do love Kendrick, uh, clean version, of course, always clean version, of course. Um, It's not Drake. It is not any of the rappers today. No, it is not. The greatest of all time, the GOAT, if you will, is none other than King D. That's his street name. You might know him as King David, um, but it is definitely King D. See, we have those four words up there about what David is. Uh, shepherd, worshiper, warrior, king. We also forgot the word goat, greatest of all time, um, because he is. He has, putting, he has been putting out banger after banger for about 3,000 years. Not even Jay-Z can claim that. Not even Eminem can claim that. Nobody can claim that except for King D. And you might be wondering, well, I haven't heard of any of these. You have. His mixtape is called uh, Psalms, in case you were wondering. Um, There are 150 of them. Now, not all 150 are his. Um, He had some collabs on there for sure. But about half of them can be attributed to King D. 
And I think we sort of get this idea of Psalms as being like these nice little comforting little like tidbits and nuggets of information. And we have this idea of David as sort of like, he's got like the the long flowy hair and the headband and he's like sitting in the corner, like playing the harp and just like stroking this little lamb while he's playing the harp. And I mean, that's, that's not the picture I get of David. I get this picture of David as like, I mean, yeah, he has some of those Psalms where, you know, he's praising God and things like that. But there's some of these, these Psalms that they, if you put a beat behind them, they, they would be, they'd be bangers for real. And I think that I would be remiss, or I think I would be doing you guys a disservice to have a David sermon and not bring in some of those Psalms and not talk about some of those things and show you maybe in a little different way of what we can take from some of these Psalms. And we're actually gonna be, um, I'm gonna be talking from Psalm 59 today. So if you wanna go ahead and pull that up, you're welcome to. Um, but I think that David, it, his Psalms were almost a way of him sort of expressing himself, right? That's why, that's why we, we write music. I mean, we, I don't write music, gosh no. Um, but people who write music, the reason why they do it is to sort of kind of talk about how they're feeling without actually having to like talk about it or say it's sort of their outlet, right? And I think the Psalms were much of the same for David. See, with David, we have the benefit of not just seeing what people wrote about him, um, like the stories of Samuel and stuff that we've been talking about, But we actually get to see the inside of David. We get to see the inner workings of David's heart, his soul, his mind, his feelings in the music, in his outlet of the Psalms. So we get to see sort of what people say about him and we get to see his story that people write about him. But at the same time in the Psalms, we also get to see exactly what he feels as he's going through it. And I think that's really cool um, that we're able to see both sides like that. Um, That's not sort of a... um, that's not really the luxury we have of a lot of other biblical characters. We just know what is written about them. We don't get to get into their head. Um, and it's cool because we can look at the Psalms and we can see the good times. You can tell the, the Psalms that he wrote when he was going through good times. And then you can also tell the Psalms that he wrote when he was going through some rough stuff. Um, and those are not, those sort of rough times are not the picture that I get of David playing the nice little harp and stroking the sheep, right? That's not the picture that I get from those Psalms. And Psalm 59 is one of them that I think you might look at a little differently. So let's go ahead and pull that up. We're gonna be in Psalm 59, verse nine. We're gonna start there. And it says, you are my strength. I watch for you, O God, are my fortress. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. Isn't that pretty? Isn't that nice? Isn't that a nice psalm? That's one of those things that like you want to just like, like you want to screenshot it. You want to make it as your background. You want to like write it in like some nice, pretty cursive font, like a pink cursive font. And you want to like crochet it on a pillow or, and you want to put like a coffee mug with like a bald eagle and like a hot air balloon and a mountain climber and turn it into this motivational poster, right? That's one of those motivational pictures that you see. We have some nice moments for David, right? Obviously, he was saying, my God, I can rely on you. You're my strength, my fortress. You're like, yeah, that's pretty cool. I like that. I want to remind myself of that every day, right? But then we see it kind of takes a turn here. God will go before me, which that's nice too. We could add that sort of to the first little bit there. And will let me gloat over those who slander me. Huh. 
We just went from a motivational poster to David's over here gloating now. It's kind of, kind of took a little turn there. Um, verse 11, but do not kill them, Lord, our shield, or my people will forget. That's, that's nice. That's nice. He's, he's, he's bringing it back. He's saying, oh, you know what? I was gloating now, but don't, Lord, don't kill them. Don't kill them, Lord, our shield. My people will forget. We're nice. In your might, uproot them and bring them down. For the sins of their mouths and the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride. For the curses and lies they utter, consume them in your wrath. Consume them till they are no more. Whoa. I'm a little confused. This started as a motivational poster. Now we're talking about consuming people with wrath till they are no more. This motivational poster just turned into a diss track written by none other than King David. I'm confused. What's going on here? Then it will be known to the ends of the earth, that God rules over Jacob. That's nice. We're, we're, we're back to, to nice King David here. But then he goes about again in verse 14. They return at evening, snarling like dogs, and prowl about the city. They wander about for food and howl if not satisfied. But I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. I love that. I love that because when you read it, that's not sort of the picture of these Psalms that you get, right? Like I can't really see myself or I can't really see David sitting there, you know, playing the harp and then like talking about like consuming people with wrath and just consume them till they are no more. Like David's angry. David's upset. David's mad. And that really makes me wonder what in the world could be going on at this time in David's life when he would write something like that? When he's talking, like calling people snarling dogs and wanting to consume people, what in the world could David have been going through when that happened? And see, I think it's interesting that we're able to, to take that and we're able to take that sort of his feeling that he has and we can sort of project that to the actual story that we have of David in 1 Samuel that we've been going through. Now, we don't exactly know when each psalm was written or why exactly it was written. However, we do know um, that Psalm 59 was written because the Bible tells us it was written at a time where guards and Saul was watching over David. They basically, he basically set guards outside of David's house who he couldn't escape. Um, Saul was wanting to sort of kill him at this point, and we'll talk about it in a minute. Um, but while that was happening, there were guards outside of David's house, so he couldn't escape. And the Bible says that Psalm 59 was written during that time. Um, so that was kind of a darker sort of interesting time in, um, in David's life. And it's the story of 1 Samuel 19, which we're going to be in a minute as well. Um, I'm going to throw a lot of scripture out at you today, so just kind of hang with me. I'll try to give you as much of a heads up as possible. Um, but we're going to be in 1 Samuel 19 here in a minute. But before we dig in there, there's one thing I want to point out. And if you don't get anything from the rest of what I'm about to tell you, um, or if you're already lost, which is a very good possibility, um, come back to me real quick and just, just know this one thing. When we go back to the psalm in the last sort of verse of that psalm that we just read, David wrote that God is our refuge in times of trouble. And that's an important, that's an important sentence there. That's an important verse because he's our refuge in times of trouble. It never says anything about he's our refuge from trouble. It's in times of trouble. That's literally the Bible telling you, hey, you're going to have trouble. You are going to struggle. You are going to have to fight. But there's a nice sort of way there of God saying, 
but I will be your refuge in that. I will be your fortress in that. But that's not to say that you're not going to ever struggle or that you're never going to have problems because that's not what the Bible is about. That's not what Christianity is about. That's not what God is about. He's all about being your refuge in times of trouble, but it doesn't say from trouble. And I think that's important because I think a lot of times when we have trouble, we think that, you know, we did something wrong or we think that, God, why is this happening to me? Why, why would you do this to me? And I think it's because we don't really understand what God's doing most of the time because most of the time when we have trouble, it's, it's not really trouble. God is actually training us for something greater. Your trouble, most of the time, is God training you for something bigger and better. He's training you to start something different. He's training you so that way you can say, you know what? I've been there. I've experienced that. Look where I can come today because I had that trouble, because I had that experience. Because I was in that, I now know how to get past it. And I think when we realize that distinction and that designation, I think it really helps us for the way we live our lives because it kind of changes the perspective that we have when we're struggling. It kind of changes that mindset that we have when we're like, God, why are you doing this to me? If we can sit here and think, you know what, God, this is not good. This is not fun. But I know it's because you're preparing me for something greater than I could ever imagine. So as we read this story of David, I think that that's exactly what's going on in these passages that we're going to read is that God, you will see, is preparing and training David for the next journey, for the next phase of his life to be king. Um, Because what we're going to read, there's a lot of junky stuff that happens to David that we're about to read today. Um, But I think that God is just training David for that next phase of his life to be king. Um, So just just to recap really quickly, in case you missed the first two weeks or anything like that, um, we started with David in week one, um, and we talked about how David was really successful. We're, we're Psalm 59 that we just read was coming off the heels of some the most successful times in David's life, which Pastor Frank talked about the last two weeks. Um, he was anointed as a young man to be king um, in front of all his brothers. He had a pretty cool opportunity there. He was chosen as the king to replace Saul, which God, you know, told Saul or God saw Saul and say, hey, I don't have my hand on you anymore. You are not doing the kingly things that you're supposed to do that I would want you to do. So God anointed David instead. Um, He was called a man after God's own heart, David was. He was also humble. He remained faithful. He was still a servant. Even after he was anointed king, what did he do? Pastor Frank told us, and he showed us in the scripture, that he went back out and tended the sheep even after he was anointed king. So he was humble. He was faithful. He stayed doing what it is that he was supposed to do. Um, So even though God spoke over him, he still stayed the same. Um, Even though God said, hey, you are my chosen person that I'm going to anoint to be king, David still did the same things he always did. Um, And that just shows the humility that David had. And I think that just sort of um, kind of made that point that God called him even more because he knew that he wouldn't take advantage of that anointing. He knew that he wouldn't take advantage of that position of power or anything like that. And I think that's awesome. Um, So even though everyone knew that he was going to be king, everybody knew he was kind of a little bit special, right? I mean, he got anointed. He had the ram's horn filled with oil poured over his head. Everybody knew, especially his brothers, that David was going to be special at some point. And if they didn't know it then, 
They certainly knew it in week two that we talked about last week after he killed the giant Goliath. At that point, you got to know David's a little bit special when all you need to kill Goliath is uh, a slingshot and a stone. Um, So clearly David's special. Everybody knows it. Um, Saul, King Saul, didn't really have the confidence in David until he went out there and brought Goliath's head back. Um, which at that point, you got to give it to him. You got to say, hey, man, you're carrying a giant's head. All right, dude, I got you. You're like, you're, yeah, I have some confidence in you. Um, and if that still wasn't proof enough that David was a little bit special and that his life was going awesome, he had everything, man. After he'd killed Goliath, he was like the, like the ultimate hero in, in, in the city. Um, if you look in 1 Samuel 18, right after he killed Goliath, um, it said, uh, you don't have to turn there, just look. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David has everything. David is being compared to be greater than King Saul. He's got everything. He's got, I mean, he just killed the giant. He's a war hero. He um, is anointed to be king. Uh, His music career is taking off uh, because he's writing these psalms and he's playing for the king. Um, He's got women following him everywhere. I mean, this dude's got it made. He has everything. Yet, a short time after all of this, we get Psalm 59 that we just read. How does that happen? How does he go from having absolutely everything to writing something like Psalm 59. And that's what we're going to talk about, and that's where I'm going, because these last two verses here, it says, Saul was very angry. The song, the refrain, displeased him greatly. They They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. So at this point, Saul didn't like David. Saul began to do everything he can to kill David. He began to do everything he can to make sure David did not prosper. Um, He wanted to do everything he possibly could to make sure that David would not be successful in taking over the throne from him. He tried many ways to kill him. Um, He, after David killed Goliath, all of a sudden Saul goes, hey man, you're gonna be like a high-ranking military officer. You're gonna go out and kill like thousands more Philistines, right? He sent him to the front lines of battle, hoping he would die. Um, He did multiple things to try to get him dead. He even let him marry his own daughter. That's how much he tried to get to kill him, was he let him marry his own daughter, Um, which I think that's an interesting way to kill somebody, but um, I guess you know your daughter. But um, um, side note, Uh, but it's crazy the amount of hatred and jealousy Saul had towards David. And we're going to talk about it in these next couple verses. Um, And I just want to show you that I think all of this stuff that David was going through was really preparing him to take over Saul's place. All of the hardships that Saul was forcing on David, I think was God's way of training David on how to be king. Because he went through some nasty stuff. Um, But God knew the only way to adequately prepare David was to throw everything he had at him. So that way when he got to be king, he could say, you know what? I have faced anything I could possibly face. I'm ready. I'm ready to rely on God. Um, And hopefully I can show you that today. Um, 
So we're going to pick up in 1 Samuel 19, verse 8. So this is after David kills the David kills Goliath. This is after the women are singing and dancing. This is after Saul keeps an eye on him and appoints him a high ranking in the military officer and things like that. This is after he marries his daughter. Um, so that's the context for where we're going to pick up. 1 Samuel 19, 8. It says, once more, war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. I just want to stop right there real quick. Just that half of a verse. Um, I think it's important that we stop and acknowledge the struggle. I think it's important to stop and acknowledge what exactly is going on here. Because if we don't understand what's going on, if we don't understand the struggle, if we don't understand the hardship, we can never understand where David's strength comes from. If you don't understand the problem, you're not going to understand the solution most of the time. So if we don't understand what it is that David is fighting, exactly what it is that is going on in David's life, we're never going to understand where his strength that he has to be king comes from. And I think one of the things that sticks out to me the most when we talk about struggling and we talk about hardship and we talk about, you know, troubles finding us everywhere we go, there's a quote that I always like to say to myself daily, um, and it's a pretty, it's, it's an older quote, but I like it a lot. It really makes me think. It says, a smooth sea never made a skillful sailor. And it's kind of an alliteration. It's kind of hard to say. Um, but I think about that on the daily. A smooth sea never made a skillful sailor. What that tells me is that the only way to get good at something or the only way to get better at something or the only way to gain strength through something is to go through something rough is to go through something that's not always perfect. If you're a sailor and all you have ever known is a calm and smooth sea, how are you going to know what to do when a storm happens? How are you going to know what to do when big waves crash on you? Life is the exact same way, guys. If we have a perfect life, if we have nothing but perfect lives, if we have, nothing, if we have no trouble, no hardship, no struggle, what are we going to do when something bad happens? We're not going to know how to react. We're going to freak out. We're not going to know what to do. The troubles and struggles and hardships that we have make us stronger. They make us better. We build from them. We learn from them. God knows that. David knew that. David's struggles come from, I mean, essentially God is giving him these struggles to train him, right? But David knows, hey, God's doing this to, to train me for something greater. He's training me so that way when something bad happens, when I become king, I know exactly how to handle it. Because what this verse tells me in chapter 19, verse 8, you know what the reward for killing Goliath was? More battles. Once more, war broke out. After David had the biggest victory of his life and killed Goliath, what happens after that? Oh, more battles. He went out and fought the Philistines again. I think a lot of times when we hear the story of David and Goliath, we don't really understand what happens after, right? When I was younger and I used to hear, you know, David, he, he slays the giant and, and he's this war hero and then he just goes home. We think he like took like a beach vacation for the next two months, right? And celebrated his victory. No, he, he didn't. He went right back out and went back to war. 
You don't have the luxury in your life or when you slay a giant in your life that Pastor Frank talked about last week. When you kill that Goliath, when you have those big victories, you don't have the luxury of going home and sitting and staring at his head for the rest of your life. You don't get that luxury. That's not how life works. The reward for killing Goliath, the reward for being victorious is more battles. Life's the same way. Whenever you think you have slayed a giant in your life, like Pastor Frank talked about yesterday, that's awesome. And you should sell, or last week, that's awesome. You should celebrate that. But you know what? There'll be another one. Goliath has brothers. Goliath has sisters, right? There's always going to be another one. You don't get the luxury of stopping. You don't get the luxury of stepping back and saying, ooh, I got one, God. I'm done. Count me out. It doesn't work like that. David knew that. David went back out once more, war broke out. There's another um, translation that says war broke out again. There's always going to be another battle. There's always going to be something else for you to fight. But the good thing for David is he was a warrior. The good thing for David is he was a very, very good warrior too. Not only that, obviously he killed Goliath, but he was a very good warrior. Look at the second part of verse eight. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. He was winning. He was winning all of his battles. That's why we have under the four things that we call David, he was a warrior. He was. He was a very good warrior, too. Um, All of the battles that he fought, most of the time he won, right? But as he was winning this war, as he was winning the war against the Philistines, as he was winning this militaristic war, the military, right, the actual fighting of other countries, there was another war that was going on that's a little deeper than that. There was another war going on that David was trying to prepare for. And that's what we see in the next verse. Let's go to verse nine. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. Now it says evil spirit from the Lord. um, And there's another uh, translation that I like a little better. Um, I think it's the uh, King James version. It says, but a distressing spirit uh, from the Lord came on Saul. Distressing is an interesting word because when you're distressed, you, you, you tend to freak out a little bit, right? You go crazy. Um, Saul was beginning to act crazy. And I'll show you in a minute just how crazy he was. Well, obviously you have to be a little crazy to just be sitting in your house with your spear in your hand, first of all. Um, but he was starting to act crazy. You know, you know what that's like, right? We can all admit we've all been crazy before. Um, I know I have. When you get crazy, when you get distressed, when you freak out, what is the first thing you do? You try to take matters into your own hands. You try to say, oh my gosh, I'm freaking out. This person's doing this and this person's doing this, but I think they're lying to me. And I think that I need to figure out why they're lying. I need to figure out what that lie is. I need to talk to all their friends and make sure they're not lying to me. And what do you end up doing? You make it worse. You end up doing the something totally opposite of what was actually going on. You get this big story built up in your head because you got all these voices in your head and really it was nothing like that. But because you took it into your own hands and didn't wait, you made it 15 times worse. That's what Saul is doing here. That's that's what's going on in Saul's head. He is freaking out. He's saying, man, uh, this this David character, I I, I don't know what to do with him. It's interesting that he was so jealous of him and that Saul wanted him dead so bad, he made sure that David was with him everywhere he went. That phrase, keep your friends closer and your enemies 
keep your friends close and enemies closer, right? That's exactly what Saul was doing. He was the head of the military. He called him in to play music for him when he was sitting in his house. So that way he knew where he was at all times. He wanted to make sure he could keep an eye on him. He was going crazy. He said, I know he's conspiring against me. I know that one day uh, David is going to kill me so he can take my throne. I know it's going to happen. That's what those voices in his head was saying. He was sitting in his house with a spear, and David was playing the lyre, the harp, whatever you want to call it. Um, The only way that Saul could get rid of those voices in his head was to hear music from from King David over there in the corner, just jamming out his beats that he was making, working on his mixtape, while Saul was sitting in a corner holding his spear. Picture that for me really quickly, because that's really creepy, that reminds me of like this, this scary movie, right? Where you like open up this door to this room and like you got some dude just like chilling in the corner. I don't have a stool, but if I had a stool, I'd sit on it and I'd pretend I had a spear. Um, but like you can just imagine him sitting like in, a, in like a dark corner and he's just like sitting there and he's like mad and he's just like holding this spear, right? And then like across the room from him, you got David just chilling on this thing, just like playing the harp and just like making all this beautiful music. Can you imagine what David is feeling in that moment? Listen, David knows that Saul's crazy. David knows that Saul's got something going on. Can you imagine sitting behind a harp and staring across the room and seeing the king holding a spear and staring at you? I can't imagine that. I cannot imagine what was going through David's mind when that happened. Fortunately for us, We know what was going through David's mind when it happened. That's what we have the Psalms for, right? Psalm 59, that's what we just read while he was going through all this. But that image and that scene is so powerful to see that the weapon that Saul was about to use was a giant spear and that all David had to defend himself. All David cared about was worshiping God, playing this harp and doing what he was supposed to do. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't scared. If he was scared, you know, maybe he would have brought like a secret spear like underneath his stool or something and to like whip it out and throw back at him or something, right? But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says he was playing the lyre or harp or whatever you want to call it. He had full faith and trust in God that he was going to take care of him. Total and complete faith. And I think that that's powerful. Because he, had a, because he was a man after God's own heart. He knew exactly what God wanted. He knew exactly what God wanted him to do. Which is why this next verse is so important. David has a decision to make. Look at this next verse. After that scene that we just imaged, or that we just pictured, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. In this moment, David has a decision to make. Go back to that scene with me. We got Saul sitting in this corner over here with his spear just staring at David. Then all of a sudden, he stands up and he throws this spear at David and it sticks into the wall. At that moment, David has a decision. He can either grab that spear out of the wall and throw it back or he can flee. He can run. And I think it's interesting the decision and the choice that David made. He chose to run. 
I can imagine that was probably the hardest decision or the hardest choice David had ever had to make. Can you imagine being known for slaying giants, being known for being a war hero, and then all of a sudden somebody throws a spear at you and what do you do? You don't fight back, you run. That was probably a hard decision because if there's one thing that we know about David, he doesn't miss, he has great aim. Ask Goliath, only took one stone, you can keep the other four. You only need one stone, right? He doesn't miss. Now, Saul obviously does. I don't know how big that room was, but if you're a king and you throw a massive spear and miss somebody from like however far away, anyway, whatever, that's side note. I probably couldn't do it though, so I can't really say anything. Um, But if there's one thing we know about David, he could have easily killed Saul. All he had to do was take his hand off that lyre, off that harp, grab the spear, throw it back, boom, kill shot, done. Because if there's one thing we know about David, he's not going to miss. He has great aim. If he wants to kill Saul, he could do it. But he didn't. He chose not to. He chose to do nothing. Being known for a military hero, being known for killing giants, and you don't take the opportunity to kill somebody who doesn't like you, that's hard. That's rough to not do something that you know you're good at. Man, if, I, if you could see some of like the replies and comments that I put on Facebook to people that I never send, it would be pretty impressive. I might not be allowed in this church anymore because my wife has better judgment than me and tells me not to post it. But man, if you could see some of those replies, I got you. David had this chance to control and manipulate a situation to exactly what he wanted, but he didn't do it. He didn't do it because he knows that it was not the right time. He knows that it was not the right thing. Facebook, I got these conversations. I got these arguments on lockdown, but my wife tells me not to do it. I always have to ask her. I have to make sure I ask her first Um, because if I don't, then she gets mad at me and then I end up having to delete it and apologize. And I'm not trying to apologize when I'm right. So um, I always have to ask, ask her, but she has way better judgment than I do. So I guess I can't really complain, but I just, you know, it's hard for me. It's hard for me when I know I'm right and I say, ooh, I got you. And then I check out this comment. I write like a paragraph, right? And I want to hit sin because I know I'm right. Because I know I'm good at it. I'm good. You know, I, I can't fix a car. I can't bake a cake. I can't do a lot of stuff. But gosh, dang it, I am good at words. And I can write a dang reply. I'll tell you what. And it's hard not to be able to do that. I can only imagine David's struggle. He made a decision. And it was because he knew what God wanted. It's because he knew that God said, hey, this is not the right time to take down Saul. This is not the plan that I have for you. I have anointed you king. I have appointed you king. Let me take care of what happens with Saul. And that's so huge. That's so huge. That because he was seeking God and because he was chasing after what God wanted, he knew better than to do something that he knew he was good at. And a lot of times we don't do that. Again, I just gave you that example. I'm 
if I want to do it and I'm good at it, I'm going to do it. But David did not. He fled. And I think the reason why God made him do this or the reason why God said, you know, kind of put that in David's spirit, put it in his heart not to kill Saul was because God needed to break down everything that David knew in order to prepare him to be king. He had to remove every good thing. He had to remove everything that David relied on and break him down so much that by the time he got to be king, he knew that all he had to rely on or all he could rely on, all he needed to rely on was God. Because after this image right here, after this scene, David runs away. He flees, and we're going to read a few more verses here in a minute. But there are other examples where God is systematically taking away all of David's crutches, everything that David wanted, everything that David relied on, every person that David relied on, God took it away. And the reason he did that was because he was showing David, listen, you don't need anybody else. You don't need these crutches. You don't need to, you don't need to like lean on these crutches. You can stand up by yourself and just rely on me. And that is what's going to make you a great king. He was in training. He was in trouble. Yeah. If I had a spear coming at my head, I'm in trouble. But he knew that God was training him for something greater. He knew that God was showing him, trust me, trust me, I got you. That's the first example that we see of David sort of um, kind of breaking down everything that he knew. God took away his ability to fight back. The one thing that David knew how to do, to fight back, he took that away. Let's look what else he took away. If we go to 1 Samuel 19, 11 through 17. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning, which is where Psalm 59 comes from, which we talked about. But Michelle, Michael, however you want to say that, I don't know. But anyways, David's wife warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So she let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then she took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, she said, he is ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there, were, there was the idol on the bed and the head with some goat's hair. Saul said to her, why do you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? She told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? God took away the crutch of his wife. David had to flee and run away from his wife, what he relied on, his, his, his confidant, right? The person who you're supposed to share your life with the most. God took that away. I can't imagine, you know, having God tell me, hey, you need to like run away from Brittany. You need to like run away from your wife because, you know, you're relying on her too much. Well, yeah, I do because I can't function appropriately as an adult without her. So for, I would be in trouble. Um, but I just, I can't imagine losing that crutch, right? After you spend your life with somebody for so long and after they're uh, the biggest part of your life, the person you're supposed to share everything with and you run away from them, you have to flee. I can't imagine that. God, again, slowly breaking down those crutches that uh, David had in his life. Let's look at another one. 1 Samuel 19, verse 18. 
When David had fled and made his escape, talking about fleeing from his wife, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as the leader, the spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it and he sent more men and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself, meaning Saul, left for Ramah and went to the great cistern. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the spirit of God came even on him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say is Saul also among the prophets. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan. This was the crutch of his counselor. See, we've talked about what Samuel was before in the last series before we got to David. Samuel was sort of David's mentor. He was sort of the closest person to David that kind of showed and taught David, hey, this is how a godly person is supposed to live. This is how you follow God. It was his closest counselor. It was his closest mentor. And God takes that away. Samuel was able to protect him and God was able to protect him a couple times from the men that Saul sent three times and then he protected him from Saul too. But then after David had to flee, he left his counselor, the person who taught him everything. The person who was his mentor, he lost that. He lost that crutch of being able to go to Samuel and say, Samuel, help me. He lost that. Again, God breaking down those things that uh, David relied on. Next crutch, the crutch of his best friend. Samuel 20, verse 42. Jonathan. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and mine forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to town. I don't have time to get into the story of David and Jonathan, but they were best friends. Um, it was, it, they were really close friends. Um, they, I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, I've had the same best friend since I was in like fourth grade. And I can't imagine having to flee and run away from them and never being able to rely on them for anything again. Because whenever I'm having a bad day or whenever something happens or, you know, whenever I just need to talk to somebody, you know, I, I talk to him. Um, and I can't imagine having to run away and say, hey, I'll, you know, we've sworn, you know, uh, as friends together and maybe eventually we'll be reconnected, but like, peace out, you know? He, again, God took away his wife, took away his mentor, his counselor, took away his best friend. At some point, we get to the point where all David has left to rely on is himself. He doesn't have anybody else. He relies on himself. And then we see in the last piece of scripture that I want to read to you, what he does when all he has to rely on is himself. And this is in 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 13. Then, or that day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish, of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of the king of Gath. 
So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. It's a pretty interesting picture of King David, isn't it? It's a pretty disturbing picture of King David. What happened to David to where he had to resort to acting like a psychopath, basically, right? It was God taking away all of those things he had to rely on until the point where he even couldn't rely on himself. Think about it. The guy who killed Goliath, the guy who could defeat any Philistine ever, was afraid of another king and was so afraid that he resorted to being insane. That's what happened when he had to rely on himself, when all of his other mentors, all of his other crutches were taken away. God broke him down so much that the only thing he had to rely on was God. And see, that's the whole point of this section of verses. And that's the whole point, I think, of, um, of Psalm 59. If we can get that last, um, that last verse of Psalm 59 up there again. Um, but I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love. You are my fortress and my refuge in times of trouble. That's the last verse of Psalm 59. So after all of the, the maddening things that he wrote, after all of the consuming them with, with wrath and, and, you know, striking them down and making them wish that they didn't do this to me, we end, we resolve the song, the psalm with this. I will sing of your strength. I will sing of your love. God, you're my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. See, even though all that stuff was happening, David never forgot that. David never forgot that God is the fortress, that God is the refuge. I didn't have time to read every single verse in that section of scripture, but I promise you, if you go back and read it, you will not see one time where David complained. You will not see one time where David begged God, why are you doing this to me? Because he was a man after God's own heart. He knew what God was doing. He knew, hey, God, yeah, this is awful. This is miserable, but you're training me for something greater. You are training me to be the king that I'm supposed to be, my refuge. And I keep going back to that. When we have trouble, when we struggle, when we have hardship, rely on God. Crutches are nice. Um, I mean, relying on people is nice. Obviously, I, like I just said, I can't function without my wife on a daily basis. So I can't even make myself food. So I rely on her for a lot. I would probably starve if she wasn't there. But at some point, you got to rely on God. At some point when you're in trouble, talking to a friend is nice. Talking to my wife is nice. Talking to like, um, for me, like talking to my mentor, like, like Pastor Frank or somebody, that's nice. But at some point, man, it all comes down to seeking God in that time of struggle. It all comes down to, you know, God being that fortress for you. So as we sort of wind down and close here, um, I don't want to give too much away because Pastor Frank is going to pick up here next week and talk about all of this stuff that happened with David, what God was preparing him for. Um, And you'll see a success story. I got the... uh, I got the short end of the stick there to talk about all the bad stuff that happened to him. But, um, and then Frank gets to come and be the hero next week. But um, anyway, I'm okay with it. Um, but I just want you to j- just pause and think. 
Just, just stop for a minute and think. Do you, yeah, we, we can sing it and we can say, we can, you know, talk about these Psalms and we can read it and say, God, you're my refuge in times of trouble. But do we actually act that out? Do we actually do that? It reminds me of um, if you're one of those people who, you know, when you listen to a song, you're like, oh, I don't really listen to the words. I don't really like the words. I just like the beat, right? If you're one of those people. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't listen to the words. It's just the beat. I, I just like the sound of it. I just like this, what it sounds like, right? We like the sound of what it says when we say God is our refuge in our times of trouble. But do we actually believe that? It sounds nice. Yeah, of course. Just like the beat of a song. It sounds nice. But do we actually believe it? Do we actually like it? Do we actually act that out? Because I think for a lot of us, we don't, myself included. When I'm in trouble, the first person I go to, I'll tell you, is not God. It's Brittany. It's my friend. It's um, my mom. It's, you know, other family members. Like, like, it's Pastor Frank, which, you know, is, is those people are fine, but, but at some point you have to rely on God and say, God, you are the only one who can actually fix this. And I wonder how often we actually do that. We say it, of course, we read it, yeah, but do we do it? So I want to take a moment and I want to pray and I want you guys just, just to think about whatever you're going through, whatever trouble you're having, is God actually your refuge in that? Or are you relying on a crutch to take care of it? Is God actually the one who is bringing you out of this? Or is it still happening to you? Are bad things still happening to you because you're relying on a crutch instead of God to take care of it? So as I pray, I want you to just take a moment and think about that. Think about, God, what is going on that you need to be my refuge in. Or maybe if you don't even, maybe he's not your refuge. Maybe you're not even going to him at all. Take this time to pray and say, God, I'm sorry. I've been relying on other people. I've been relying on too many things except for you to fix it. So pray with me. Dear Lord, I just thank you for this, this, this awesome this awesome group of people in this room, God. Um, I thank you for the ability to get up here and be able to, to share my heart. And not only that, but to share what I believe you have for these people, God. Um, I pray that as we're sitting here and as we're thinking, that we just, we think about you being our refuge. You are our everything, God. We say it, we talk about it, but most of the time we don't act on it. Most of the time we don't act it out. We like the way it sounds. We like the beat of it. But do we actually like it? Do we actually believe it? Do we actually trust it? God, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that is going through some trouble, that is going through some of these things that maybe David went through or just going through whatever, that you come into their lives, that you come into their heart, that you come into their mind and be their fortress, be their refuge, God. Take care of them. And God, I pray that those people that need you, that they will reach out to you and know, hey, I can't rely on other people. I can't rely on just myself. I can't rely on my crutches. God, you are the only one who can fix my problem. I pray that if there's anybody out there like that, God, that they just reach out. And God, there's another group of people in here that maybe you're not their refuge because maybe they don't know you. Maybe they don't have a relationship with you. They don't know you well enough for you to come into their heart and be the refuge. God, if that's them, if, if you're one of those people out there, I pray that you come speak to somebody. 
God has awesome plans for you. God can take care of you. God can be your refuge in those times of trouble. Now, that doesn't mean you won't have trouble because we just talked about that. That's not how life works. But God can take care of you. And I pray that if you're one of those people, you'll come see me, Pastor Frank. Come see somebody. It doesn't matter. Talk to somebody. God, you're awesome. You're wonderful. You're mighty. You're powerful. And we love you. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.